0: Podcast number 678 for the 31st of January 2020. This week, password managers have become essential tools for those who want to protect their data, and other actions can improve your odds of surviving. In short circuits, website pop up messages asking to send notifications are annoying, and now browser publishers are making it easier for those of us who detest those messages to get rid of them. Sometimes you might want Windows to believe that you're not in the location where the operating system thinks you are. It's an easy fix. In spare parts, only on the website, Facebook claims to have ways to protect your privacy, or at least to control more of what Zuckerberg and crew know about you, so let's take a look. A man who claimed to protect organizations from distributed denial-of-service attacks will be sentenced, in May, for staging such attacks himself. And 20 years ago, Apple was well on the way to the great turnaround, and Apple's board of directors presented Steve Jobs with a new airplane. Several decades ago, antivirus applications weren't necessary. Then suddenly they were. Antivirus applications weren't needed for Apple computers. Then they were. Password managers were nice-to-have applications for a long time, but hardly necessary. Now they are. There are still organizations that forbid their employees to use password managers. These are places where employees probably write passwords down on sticky notes and put the note on the monitor. There'll be some clever people who stick the note to the inside of their desk drawer, or put it underneath a desk pad. I remember having to change half a dozen passwords every 45 days. Instead, I set a reminder to make the change every 42 days. That meant my password changes would always be on Wednesdays, and the passwords wouldn't expire on a weekend day. I also created a system that used a series of codes that linked in an obscure way to terms that only I knew. Anyone could have the code, and it would be meaningless. In addition to managing passwords, these password manager applications often have extra features that review usernames to see if they've been involved in a data breach, display the strength of passwords, and even provide an overall assessment of your passwords based on whether or not the passwords have been reused, how old they are, whether they may have been compromised, and how strong they are. Many organizations now have converted to single login systems that authenticate users on all systems that they should have access to. Corporate IT departments that use these systems have made the right choice, but many users probably still write down their passwords. Passwords aren't the only way to authenticate users. Authentication can be accomplished using one of three methods, and sometimes with an additional second factor. The three options, first, Something you know, and passwords are the most common there. Something you have, that could be a key fob or a smart card. Or something that you are, facial recognition, fingerprints, and retina scans are used there. There are other methods, including one that was virtually foolproof in the days when phone lines and modems were used. High security modems were designed to be user-specific, and those who needed access to a computer would call their modem their modem would immediately disconnect and then call the user back at the one telephone number registered with that device. That was expensive, cumbersome, but quite secure. Most financial and medical systems now use multi-factor authentication A credit union I use asks for my username, which is not an email address. Then it displays a photo that I selected when I set up the account so that if I see something else, I'll know there's a problem. Next, I'm asked for the account password, and when that has been accepted, I have to respond to a security question. That's a fairly quick and reasonably painless process. A bank that I use requires only a username and password if I log on from a computer that has been previously authenticated. About once a week, though, the bank does require that I enter a security code that the system sends to my mobile phone. Or if I attempt to log on from a new computer, the server will send a security code to my phone to ensure that I am who I claim to be. Security is a tough topic. I don't envy chief security officers who have to balance security with ease of use. When a system is easy to use, security is probably less than ideal. Conversely, extremely high security makes the system more difficult to use. And the thing with passwords is really they're dead. They just don't know it yet. Better systems are coming, passwords will fade over the coming years as biometric systems become more popular and as their costs fall. Some notebook computers have fingerprint readers right now. My primary computer has one, i never use it because it's near the keyboard and the case has to be open for me to provide a fingerprint. The computer connects to two external monitors, an external mouse, and an external keyboard, so the cover is always closed. I do still use a password for access, but I could also use a PIN or the Windows Hello face recognition function. I have set up a PIN, and I use it occasionally just to confirm that it's still working as expected. The Surface Pro tablet that travels with me recognizes my ugly mug. Consumer-grade biometric systems, though, have a long way to go, and they should not be considered to be as secure as a password. So, for the immediate future, and probably for a couple of decades, we are still stuck with passwords. I've written about password managers before and used LastPass for many years. A year ago, I switched to 1Password, and while it was as functional and as well-built as LastPass, I've switched back to LastPass. And those are just two of the programs available to help with password management. You'll find a list of most of the top contenders on the Techbiter Worldwide website this week. That's www.techbiter.com. But you might wonder, if web browsers can not remember credentials for sites that you visit often, and they can, why is a separate password manager needed? That's a pretty logical question. Although browsers are doing a better job of protecting passwords that they store, it is still better to use an app made explicitly to manage passwords. Those of us who use more than one browser find that a password manager is a huge improvement over storing credentials in the browser. That's because the password manager will work with all browsers. Trying to coordinate passwords between browsers is time-consuming. Password managers are even more important for those who use more than one computer and a mobile device or two. A good password manager will coordinate credentials on all of your devices. Besides using a password manager, there are other good practices that improve security for your data, cloud-based resources, and online shopping. Some disagreement exists, and I should note that disagreement extends even to whether password managers themselves are a good idea. I feel that they are, but some consultants are passionately opposed because losing control of the credentials for the password manager could reveal every username and password you have to some exceptionally bad folks, people you don't want to have that information. So if you use a password manager, create a strong password. Make it so long and so obscure that nobody, not even your spouse or a close friend, will be able to guess it. And it's a good idea to write that password down and store it so that a spouse can find it in an emergency. Storing it on the computer is not a good idea. And don't just email it to your spouse. Go really old school here. Write it down on an index card. Put the index card in an envelope and store the envelope in a location that you and your spouse know. Here are some other best practices that aren't always best practices. Change your passwords frequently is a common admonition. Well, no. In fact, that's one of the most absurd suggestions in the history of computing. This practice causes no end of trouble. Create long and strong passwords that are impossible to guess, difficult to type, and not at all memorable. Your password manager takes care of remembering and typing the monstrous password so you don't have to. Use a service that can report when a username may have been compromised and change the password only then. I have more than 300 passwords, and if I changed them all every 45 days, I'd probably not get any work done. Password managers such as LastPass can check your usernames against lists of credentials that have been exposed, or you can use an online service to see if your email address or username has been exposed in a data breach. Second suggestion usually is don't reuse passwords, and that's excellent advice, but it's not an absolute. Bill Hess has written about the risks of reusing passwords on his Pixel Privacy blog. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The exceptions to the rule that I see are for trivial resources, websites that store no personal data about you, I have unique passwords for websites such as Adobe Creative Cloud, American Electric Power, my health insurance provider, Banks, Amazon, my website control panel, and other sensitive sites. Each of the passwords is long, complex, impossible to remember, and very difficult to type. But I also have login credentials for places like CNET, LastFM, Merriam-Webster, NVIDIA Support, and a lot of other sites that are unimportant financially. In fact, most of those sites do have unique passwords, too. But they tend to follow a pattern. And at least for the past couple of years, when I set up new accounts, I've been creating long, strong, unique passwords. I just haven't gone back to change the less robust passwords on trivial sites. Another suggestion? Never share a password. Well, (laughs) That rates as a duh measure. Some organizations consider sharing a password with another worker to be grounds for dismissal, and that's reasonable. Never share a password. And how about this one? Avoid dictionary words and trivial passwords. A password manager will keep you from doing this. But if you must create your own passwords, avoid ones like these. 123456. Password. Let me in. 123456789. Let me in 123 and QWERTY, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. And yes, people do use passwords like those. Don't do it. If you create your own passwords, you should test the password. Long, strong, complex passwords stored in a password manager make that suggestion much less important. But you can download Microsoft's password testing tool if you need to create your own passwords. The tool's limit is passwords with 23 or fewer characters, though. Also, keep in mind that longer passwords are better. As illogical as it might seem, a string of 25 numeral 1 characters is more secure than a password like uppercase x, 6, uppercase u, 2, lowercase y, lowercase b, ampersand k. The password with all 1s has 25 characters. The more complex password has just 8 characters. Long and complex is better, but length trumps complexity. Another common suggestion, make passwords hard to guess but easy to remember. Using a password manager eliminates the need to make passwords easy to remember. A long and easy to remember password might be something like, we all live in a yellow submarine, all strung together. The trouble with doing something like that is you still need to devise a separate password for each site, and you'll very quickly forget which site uses we all live in a yellow submarine, and which one uses Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Then you'll start writing the passwords down, and that's a bad idea. And that brings us to the suggestion to never write passwords down. There are exceptions to that rule. In an office, writing passwords down is a bad idea. So bad that it might get you fired. It's different at home, though. Some people just have a notebook, and I mean a real physical notebook, not a notebook computer, just a notebook, where they write every username and password along with the name of the site that it's used for. That's safe enough unless someone breaks into your house and steals the list. Still, a password manager is better. And another best practice, use two-factor or multi-factor authentication when possible. And yes, that does slow the login process down but it substantially improves security. There's a lot of common sense involved in creating and securing login credentials. And The more care you take, the safer you, your computer, and your data will be. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here. In short circuits, website designers sometimes seem to be intent on finding ways to annoy visitors. Years ago, we had flash animations that users had to watch before the site opened. Then designers added autoplay audio or autoplay video files. Today, we have pop-ups that want us to subscribe to a newsletter, offer us chats, and perhaps even more annoying, ones that want to send us notifications. Stop it already! How can somebody know whether they want to subscribe to your newsletter, chat with an autobot or maybe a real person, or receive notifications from your website if they've only just arrived? This is the cyber equivalent of meeting someone and immediately asking if they want to go to bed with you. Far too many sites engage in this annoying behavior. Virtually all people who are faced with the offer to send notifications respond by saying no or just ignoring the message. Most of us have enough messages and enough interruptions without volunteering for more. Currently, Chrome, Firefox, and Safari all allow websites to engage in this annoying behavior. The good news is that browser developers are working to end the practice, or at least curtail it. Some notifications can be helpful. You'll find them on social network sites and some news sites, but they can easily be misused. A site should prompt the user once and then abide by whatever decision the user makes. Instead, many sites continue asking to send alerts no matter how many times the user rejects them. Even worse, scammers have discovered how easy it is to misuse the technology. The Chromium blog says that Google recommends developers follow best practices for requesting notification permission from users. The blog points out what should be a common-sense bit of information. Websites that ask users to sign up for web notifications when they first arrive often have a very low accept rate. Why this seems mysterious to some website developers is puzzling. Very few people want to commit to interruptions from something that might do nothing more than just waste their time until they know more about what the website offers and how the information provided might be useful to them sites that request permission at contextually relevant moments, according to the Chromium blog, enjoy lower bounce rates and higher conversion rates. Mozilla's blog reported research late last year that showed clearly these silly notifications are not appreciated by users. I quote We received telemetry regarding 217,000 permission prompts in one week. We discarded data for about 11% of prompts coming from approximately 40 users who had more than 200 prompts during the week. Once they did that, they were able to use the resulting numbers for some research. A surprising number of website visitors simply left the website after seeing the first request. If the site continued to request permission to send alerts, more people left. After receiving 10 prompts from a site, nearly three quarters of users were gone. The requests are ineffective, in other words. At most, about 2% of users accepted the offers. More than 90% either denied the offer or left the site. So, clearly, it is a significant annoyance for most users, and it would be only a slight exaggeration to say that nobody finds the requests useful. More research from Mozilla shows that 1.45 billion prompts were shown to users, and only 23.7 million were accepted. That's slightly more than 1.5%. Website designers who were smart enough to delay the notification request until after users had interacted with the site were much more likely to have their offers accepted. 17% instead of less than 2%. Starting with version 80, which will be released in mid-February, Chrome will allow users to block these annoyances. Mozilla has already taken steps to kill the annoyance, version 72 of Firefox, released in mid-January, accepts the website's notification request, but it doesn't display a pop-up. Instead, it adds a small icon that looks like a speech bubble to the address line. You can ignore the icon and the notification will not be displayed. Or you can click the icon and choose either allow notifications or never allow. So the annoyances are hidden by default and you have to take explicit action to see them or to permanently eliminate them. Google plans a slightly more automated approach and will automatically block prompts from sites that are generally considered to be spammy, while continuing to display alerts from sites such as Twitter and Facebook. If users rarely accept notifications, Chrome will start to block all interruptions. According to Google, this will be accomplished by switching the browser's settings to what they call the Quieter Notifications UI. Even if users accept some alerts, sites with low acceptance rates will be set to use quieter prompts automatically. So that's good news, and the changes will take care of some of the annoyances. But sites that pop up a newsletter subscription box or something else the instant your mouse exits the site, eh, they'll still do that. Windows 10 probably knows where you are. The computer hardware may include GPS circuitry that can pinpoint your location, but Windows can also make a reliable guess even without GPS. And in some cases, you might like Windows to think you're not where it thinks you are. If the computer doesn't have GPS, Windows examines nearby Wi-Fi networks, the time zone you've set up, and the IP address you use to connect to the Internet. That's enough to get close. You can turn this feature off if you don't want Windows to know where you are, or you can limit which applications know your location. Open Settings and type Location into the search bar. Choose either Location Privacy Settings or Set Default Location. Either of these will take you to the Location tab, and there you can enable or disable the features, select which applications you want to have access to your location and specify a default location. Enabling or disabling the location service is the first setting in the location panel, The next option, if the location service is enabled, allows you to specify whether apps have access to that location information. Even if you turn that off, though, some applications may still be able to approximate your location using Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, a cellular modem, or other hardware, but with limited accuracy. Apps provided by the Microsoft Store are required to respect the Windows location settings. If you choose to give apps access to your location data, you can then turn the permissions off or on for specific apps. There's also a section called Default Location. That's what Windows uses when it's unable to detect your location. Desktop computers, unlike notebook systems, generally lack GPS hardware, and they'll also probably be connected to the Internet via wire. As a result, some of the clues that Windows could normally get will be missing. If you've established high security settings or put the computer in airplane mode, Windows can't determine your location, but you might still want some location information to be available. That's what the default location setting is for. Clicking the set default might surprise you, though. Instead of showing another settings panel, it opens the built-in Maps app, opens the Apps settings, and then offers the ability to add, change, or clear the default location. If applications that depend on knowing your location are provided incorrect results, you can use this to add your current location. And if you'd like more information on the Windows 10 location function, visit Microsoft's support site. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And while you're on the TechBiter Worldwide website, be sure to check out Spare Parts, because that's the only place you'll find it. This week, Facebook claims to have ways to protect your privacy, or at least to control more of what Zuckerberg and crew know about you, so let's take a look. A man who claimed to protect organizations from distributed denial-of-service attacks will be sentenced in May for staging such attacks himself. And 20 years ago, Apple was well on the way to the great turnaround, and Apple's board of directors presented Steve Jobs with a new airplane.